0: things like that. Um, But yeah, it's been some time, and what an encouragement it is to see us at this place uh, here today uh, in this moment. Now, even though the pastors keep saying this is a significant day, this is a significant day, perhaps for uh, some of you guys, it's like, well, it doesn't feel all that significant. I mean, Tim and Sam, and they've been here now for months, uh, already serving. Uh, today is not an ordination service. Um, all of these elders are already ordained. And so perhaps for a lot of us, it just kind of feels just like an organizational uh, thing that we're doing and thing that we're taking care of. Uh, but I want to just pause and take a moment to call to attention the fact that I think part of why this day is significant, um, this, it's a significant milestone, is uh, it wasn't easy to arrive at this point. And I think the reason we are here where we are today is largely due to the leadership uh, of these brothers, uh, of all four of them. Uh, Joe and Juan have been holding it down uh, here at this congregation from the earliest days, right? Way back since renewal, King of Prussia. And though the church has certainly gone through much change and flux, uh, really Joe and Juan have been steadfast, uh, immovable rocks uh, in the life of this church. And so I don't think it's an exaggeration to say we wouldn't be at this point today without them. Uh, Tim and Sam have been providing leadership way back since the City of parish days. City of parish? Uh, and they were both instrumental in helping the church transition and providing leadership through that transition process to form this new congregation. So again... Uh, Without Tim and Sam, uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say we would not be here today. We would not be at this point without them. And I will say, um, really, it's probably only God and second to God, their wives, uh, who fully appreciate and grasp the amount of time, uh, the amount of energy, the many, many, many countless conversations, prayers, prayers. Uh, that they've had with one another, that they've, they've had with many of you. Um, I think it's probably only God and their wives who fully absorb just what it has cost them uh, to help get us here today. And so as we install these brothers, uh, though, I, as I said, it might feel for some of us just kind of like an organizational formality, uh, I really hope that we're able to celebrate uh, not just this moment as a church, but I really hope and I think it's fitting that we celebrate uh, these men as a church uh, and for how the Lord has used them. For the Apostle Paul writes in First Timothy 5, giving instructions to the church, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And I think these brothers have ruled well. And I think it is entirely appropriate to honor them, to give thanks to God for them, for their sacrifice, for their service, uh, and to let them know that. Because even if you are thankful for them, it helps them to know that you're thankful. Uh, We're just human. We need support and encouragement, as I'll talk about in just a bit. So we want to be praying for them, encouraging them in their role, uh, continuing to support them in their role as elders, Uh, And so with that, as we heard the passage that was read for us from 1 uh, Peter 5, I want to talk about what elders are called to do, because if you're going to support them in that work, you're going to pray for them in that work as an elder, you need to know what the expectations are uh, upon their lives, upon their calling. And so I want to remind all of us as we look at this text just what elders are called to do, again, in order that you might support these brothers before us well, secondly, Uh, The hope is that as the church grows, the Lord would raise up more elders. And so as a reminder to you, as we think about future elders, future election, nomination and election of elders, what are we to be looking for? What type of of leaders are we praying that God would raise? Uh, And and again, uh, we want to see what the scripture has to do and say about that. So let me turn us to 1 Peter 5. Uh, which is one of the key passages describing what, again, elders are called to do. And so uh, four things I want to highlight for us here. We see the mission given to elders, the manner that they are about to go, uh, they are about to do their mission, um, uh, the manner with which they're about to do it, uh, the motivation, and finally we see a mutual call given to the whole congregation. All right, so the mission, the manner, the motivation of elders, as well as a mutual call given to all, all right? So first of all, the mission. We're kind of just dropping into this passage. We haven't been studying First Peter. We're just parachuting right into this. But this letter is written by the Apostle Peter to Christians in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, to encourage them and to prepare them for the coming persecution, right? They are going to about to go through and have started to go through some incredibly difficult times, they are facing persecution. And he wants to encourage them uh, to remain steadfast in their faith. And so in the immediate uh, passage, immediately preceding the passage that was read for us, that's what he's focusing on. That's what he's highlighting, especially, even though he's covering it throughout the letter, but he's especially focused on that, to be prepared for suffering, for the persecution that is coming, the hardships that are coming. And then immediately after... He begins to describe uh, the role of elders. But it's not a completely unrelated thought. It's not a complete just change in subject. All right, now I talked about suffering as a Christian. Now let's address the elders. They're entirely connected. And the reason is, how are the people of God, how is the flock going to prepare for their suffering? How is the flock going to be prepared because they're about to get hit? How will they be prepared for that season, for those times that are coming? Well, it's by the leadership, through the ministry and the leadership of the elders of the church. So he writes in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Because elders, this time is coming, and it is your responsibility that your people be ready, that they have the kind of faith where they remain firm and steadfast. Now, as a leader, as a church leader, as a pastor, I'll be the first to admit, it is easy for our minds to quickly drift to and naturally drift to what the church is not. Right? How the church is not this, the church is not that. We wish people were more this. We wish people were more that. And our minds can easily go that way. And it's easy to settle there and begin to feel sorry for yourself. But Peter reminds these elders they may not be this, they may not be that, but that's your job. By God's enablement, it's your job to get them there. It's your job to help raise them to be the kind of people with a firm and steady faith, even being willing to lay down their lives. It's your job to do it, elders. And so he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And the imagery of a shepherd was very familiar to people in biblical times, right? Um, And it was the chief image used to describe leaders for the people of God. That's the best way that scripture captures it, using the imagery of a shepherd. Think about it, right? Some of the greatest leaders of scripture, Moses. He's called from shepherding the flocks of Jethro to shepherding the people of God in the Exodus. David called from shepherding his father's flocks to becoming the shepherd of Israel, the king. Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd who ultimately lays down his life for the sheep. The resurrected Jesus talks to Peter, the apostle, the author of this letter. And as he restores him to ministry, restores him to leadership in the church after his failure, he invites him using the language of, Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Elders and shepherds, though none of us in this room are shepherds, though none of us in this room, I can guarantee, probably know an actual shepherd, right? I think we all get the sense of what shepherds do, generally speaking, right? I'll, let me use the um, matrix given in a good book, uh, The Shepherd Leader by Tim Whitmer. Shepherds, first of all, know their sheep. That's part of their role. They're called to know their sheep. John chapter 10, Jesus says again, I know my sheep, they know my voice. Elders are to take the time to know the issues of the congregation, to know the needs of the congregation, to know the spiritual condition of the flock, to know where our deficiencies are, to know where our strengths are. And you can't know these things without spending time with the flock, listening to the flock. Um, Just kind of continuing off the eagle's win, Jeff Lurie's knock on Chip Kelly was he wouldn't talk to the players in the hallway, right? That's the kind of culture that was formed. He wouldn't talk to them. He wouldn't engage them, and he wouldn't open his heart to them. He lacked emotional intelligence. And so in looking for their next coach, that's what they prioritized, right? Someone who would engage the players, talk to the players, listen to the players, open their heart to the players. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the flourishing that we see, Super Bowl victory, uh, under Doug's leadership has a lot to do with this. Good leaders know their people. Shepherds are also called to feed their sheep. Psalm 23, right, leads us to uh, green pastures, quiet waters. Good leaders, shepherds, are to make sure the Word of God is taught faithfully, effectively, and with regularity, publicly, personally, making sure that the young, spiritually young, are fed To maturity, making sure that the spiritually weak and struggling are fed to stand firm. And for those who are healthy, the flock who is healthy, to continue to feed them words of encouragement so as to promote further growth. Shepherds know. Shepherds feed. Shepherds lead their sheep. Psalm 78, 70-72 again talks about David's shepherding leadership over the people of God. Peter uses this phrase, exercising oversight. Elders are to oversee all that happens in the church, but not just simply in a way of passively kind of taking in the view, just let me oversee things, passively just taking things in, but more like, again, use a sports analogy, just like a coach. A coach oversees those who are being trained under him. And as they oversee this person, they're looking again for areas of weakness, areas improvement, areas where uh, those that they are coaching, areas of growth, in order that the person they are coaching could maximize their potential. For the church, this is what church leaders are called to do, to oversee people in a way, looking out for ways that we can help maximize the potential of people. Collectively speaking, the three major God-ordained callings of the church is that we should love God, love each other, and love the world and mission. And the fact of the matter is, churches tend to focus on one at the expense of the other two. They typically are better at one or maybe even two things and struggle in another area, right? And just like sometimes uh, when we hear the laundry, we'll hear a really loud kind of rattling noise, and what that cues us in on is in the spin cycle in the laundry— Right? Things have kind of all cramped to one side, and that throws the whole thing off, and the whole, you know, laundry, it sounds like it's going to explode, right? But you open the top, and you realize, all oh, the clothes kind of collected on that one particular side. It's imbalanced. And likewise, I think churches can fall into imbalance, where perhaps we're just too inward. Some churches are too outward, right? Some churches aren't working on the vertical. They're great at the horizontal, but lacking in the vertical. Well, that's the job of the elders, to make sure that there's a balance, a continual balance in all of these areas. Shepherds know, shepherds feed, shepherds lead, shepherds protect their sheep. Acts chapter 20, Paul describes how wolves, vicious wolves are gonna come in, try to attack the flock. We're not just building a worldly organization here. The church is an organism. It is the living body of Christ. It is a spiritual entity. And because of that, there will be spiritual opposition. We have a very real enemy who seeks to destroy the church. And the call of the elders is to protect our sheep from falling off cliffs, from getting attacked by wolves. In spiritual terms, this means going after those who are straying away, who are compromising and allowing um, sin to remain hidden in their lives and unaddressed in their lives those who are being led astray by all kinds of false teaching and and such, the job of the elders is to protect them. Ezekiel 34, the shepherds of Israel are rebuked by God. And one of the major reasons they're rebuked is that they let the sheep scatter. In other words, they didn't protect the fold. They just kind of let sheep wander off is the imagery given. And as a result, they were devoured. I know we're all painfully aware of the horrific school shooting that just happened in Florida. And I'm sure most of you heard this news report, but to add insult to injury, it turns out that one or more of these deputies, the officers who arrived at the school, never entered. I mean, this guy is sitting there murdering children, and they just hid outside. And you can imagine the flack they are getting. I mean, they are getting heavily criticized for this. They're getting heavily criticized in a way that's much worse than if a normal citizen was there and just kind of waiting outside. And the reason is because we don't expect a normal citizen to go in and save the day. That's not their job. But the reason why these officers are getting such heavy criticism, and I think do criticism, is because their job is to serve and protect. It's what it says on the car. That's what they vowed at the police academy, to serve and protect. Knowing full well, yes, that includes putting myself and being willing to put myself in the harm's way, but my job is to serve and protect. And likewise, the job of the elders, our calling and what we vow to do, is to serve and protect our flock, whatever the cost. Elders know, elders feed, elders lead, elders protect. And not only are these the things they're called to do, but Peter, the Apostle Peter, describes the manner with which, the attitude we should have in doing these things. And he uses three phrases that use contrasts. He says, first, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not simply because you have to, but because you want to. Not merely because you're obligated to do it, but in your heart you're compelled to do it. Yes, there's a duty aspect to serving as an elder, but it should be a delightful duty. Christianity, to use the term religion in the broadest sense, Christianity Christianity is a religion of the heart. God doesn't care simply about what we do. He, He cares about why we do it. And when God elects and looks to leaders of his church, what he expects is not just that we do what we do and just get the job done, But he looks at why and the heart with which we do it. Yes, he commends the diligence of Martha. But immediately afterwards, he asks for the heart of Mary. Gotta have the heart of Mary. Let me read this quote from J.I. Petker. I came across incredibly convicting. He says, have you ever heard of the spiritual disease which people in medieval times called ascetia?" It is something that threatens all Christian workers. After the first flush of enthusiasm has worn off, it's a form of sloth, but not at the physical level. It is apathy of the soul. It shows in a certain toughness of mind and wariness of spirit, which often results from hurt and disillusionment. People with ascetia in this sense have grown cynical about ideals, enthusiasms, and strong hopes. They look pityingly at young people and say, they'll learn taking it for granted that when they've learned, they'll become tough inside too. Once upon a time, these leather-soled people were keen, hopeful, and expectant. But nothing happened, or they got hurt. And now they protect themselves against pain by adopting cynical, worldly, weary attitudes. If These people are ministers of churches, elders. They work mechanically, merely going through the motions because their light has really gone out. And they're no longer expecting anything exciting to happen. They feel that they know from experience that exciting things don't happen, and that's an end of it. So they merely plot on, expecting nothing and receiving nothing. But the Lord does not send us out in his work in order that nothing may happen. His word is intended to have impact. It's sent out to accomplish something. We ought never to settle for a non-expectant, defeated attitude. Rather, we should be asking and expecting great things from God. Brothers, if we have lost our joy in service, it is our God-given call to fight for it, to get it back by his gracious enablement. Pray as David does in Psalm fifty-one, twelve: Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God, I don't want to just get the work done. I want to do it with a willing heart, a heart of devotion, a heart of delight in you. Second phrase, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. By shameful gain, Peter simply means selfish gain, selfish motivation because of what I get out of it. In ministry, the temptation always exists to serve because of what we get out of it, respect Influence, oh well, now I can shape things because I'm in a position of power, control, right? For t- teaching elders, pastors, yes, there's a temptation to just do it for the paycheck, it's a steady income. But Peter writes, No, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, again, it's possible for someone to be eager in their ministry because of again, selfish reasons. I'm eager to do it because what I get out of it, but Peter says, No. The shepherd of God is to be just the opposite. You are eager to serve, not for what you get out of it, but because of what others can get out of it. I think of my wife. She's an amazing, much better gift giver than I am. I'm horrible at giving gifts, right? Uh, but she is the type who will see something, will think of something. My husband will love that. My husband will love that. He, that'll, he'll really enjoy that. And so she is very good at that, thinking about what I would like And surprising me, hey, I got you something. It's in the bag. And she's got this excitement, this eagerness as she's prepared to give it to me. And again, she's eager not because she gets anything out of it. Her eagerness comes from loving me and seeing the joy that it brings me. And that should be the heart of the elder. Right? As I invite these people to my home, as I lead this community group, As I plan these things for the church, I can hardly wait for the ways it's going to bring them joy. It's going to serve their good. That should be the heart. Third phrase, not domineering, but being examples. Elders are certainly bestowed with spiritual authority, ruling authority. Hebrews uh, he writes, the author of Hebrews writes clearly in thirteen seventeen, obey your leaders and submit to them. But once again. The manner in which that authority is exercised matters greatly to God. There is no place in God's church, in the church of Jesus, for leaders that use intimidation, threats, are manipulative, try to exert influence with fleshly means. Rather, influence should be won through an exemplary lifestyle. Think about why we submit to Jesus. How did he, quote unquote, gain influence over your life? It's not because he beat you over the head into submission. No, it's quite the opposite. He submitted his life. He chose to be beat over the head for you. And it's through that sacrificial love and service that we respond by saying, God, you won my heart. You are the Lord. You are the Savior. I submit to you. I think of my dad, who served as a ruling elder for 30-plus years. And he is actually one of the founding elders of the church that birthed Renewal. Um, And he's still there. I always say, Dad, I think you're going to be the only person buried in the front yard of Emmanuel Church at 48th and Spruce. And I don't think he would mind that, because that's been his life. And I think a lot of people assume that the reason my dad has influence is because he's an intimidating man, and he is. His eyebrows are super bushy like mine. He doesn't smile much, and it doesn't help that he dresses like a mob boss. Right? He, he wears a fedora and a cream scarf in the wintertime. If he's not wearing the fedora, he'll wear uh, the, um, the premier uh, Gorbachev's exact hat and he doesn't smile, and he's a very intimidating-looking individual. And people assume, well, that guy has influence in the church because, wow, he's just intimidating, and he, he must yell and people listen. And trust me, he can yell. But I'll say this. As his son, who watched him up close, you know, I saw what other people did not. And in this case, there are good things to report. You know, I grew up watching him host literally, I, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, probably a thousand or more people in through our home over the course of those 30 years. I mean, growing up, it was a regular thing to always have church people at our house. Bible study at our house, this event at our house. They're just My mom cook, cooking up a storm. People were always at our house. They were always hosting. My memory growing up was my dad always going to the hospital always visiting people, always being at the funeral, always walking with people through their worst times, always telling me so-and-so has cancer. We're going to go visit them. My memory of him growing up was um, walking, uh, you know, coming home 2 a.m. from elders' meetings, which now I understand why it went till 2 a.m. Because when I was young, I was like, what do you talk about till 2 a.m.? But now I understand. But anyway, coming home 2 a.m., getting pulled over by cops because they thought he was drunk driving because he was falling asleep at the wheel, and he would show him his Korean Bible with the red ink on the side and say, I'm coming from church. (laughs) I mean, that that man poured his life out. And what I've come to realize is that's why to this day, there are people in that church who listen to anything my dad says. Not because he exerted power over them, but they saw him literally sacrifice his life. And younger leaders raised up doing the same thing. Why? Because they saw it from him. Exemplary life. This is the manner in which an elder is to serve. Motivation. Two truths that motivate in this passage one is very explicit, one's more implicit. Explicitly, verse 4 When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Very simply, the elder elder should be motivated by eternal reward. Now, there are several places in the Bible that talks about receiving a crown from our God. And a lot of times, it's just referencing the crown that every believer will receive. In fact, eternal life is sometimes just, the metaphor is a crown. But in this context, it seems to imply that there is a particular reward particular crown, particular reward set apart for shepherds who have faithfully shepherded. Because as Apostle Paul describes in 1 Corinthians, there are different degrees of reward. Some will have more than others. That's a whole other topic in itself. But for those elders who have faithfully shepherded, you will be richly rewarded with a reward that far outweighs any sacrifice you have made in this life because you and I know, brothers, there are many sacrifices that I said earlier. Only God and your wife will really come to understand and know about. But as John Piper writes, if you you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. Not just now, and I think he does mean now, your joy will be full in this life, but even more so for eternity. Now let me address the implicit motivation in this text. Everything that the elders are called to do and be here by Peter, Christ the chief shepherd has already done and been for you. He has known us, fed us, led us, protected us. He did not lay down his life simply because he had to, but he went willingly. He chose to. For the joy set before him, in other words, with an eagerness in his heart, he went to the cross, thinking of the day where we would share in eternity with him. He has won our submission, not by domineering over us, but by sacrificially serving us when we least deserved it. Perhaps, as I was going through some of these things, there's a measure of guilt. I know there was for me. <laughs> Ways in which I have failed. Ways in which I have not been the elder I should be. But I also find it great encouragement in being reminded of who wrote this letter. The Apostle Paul. I mean, the Apostle Peter. And how does the Apostle Peter begin this passage that we read? He says, as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. In what circumstances did Peter witness the sufferings of Christ? He witnessed them while he was hiding. He witnessed them by trying to save his own skin, staying far away while Jesus was getting arrested. And he denies him three times. And they catch eyes. And I can, only imagine, I can only imagine what Peter felt in that moment of seeing Jesus locking eyes with him after having just denied him for the third time. I can only imagine him feeling less than worthless. But Jesus forgives him. Jesus restores him. Jesus says, Peter, I know you failed me. I saw you do it. I know you denied me. I saw you do it. But I still love you. And I'm still inviting you in to feed my sheep. And Jesus, of course, yes, God and our wives see our sacrifices, but God and probably our wives see our failures, see our inconsistencies. See our hypocrisy. But in seeing it, Jesus says, I see it all and I still love you. And I still invite you in to feed my sheep. Because they are my sheep. My flock, not your church, mine. And it is seeing that grace, seeing that forgiveness and patience that motivates us to wholeheartedly serve, continue to wholeheartedly serve the church. Finally, perhaps church, I'm going through all this. You're reminded of what the elders are called to be. Perhaps you are like, yes, are you guys listening? Yes, that's right. But Peter has some words for you as well. Elders are not the only one called to serve the church. There should be a mutual service that happens in the church. Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And it seems that he's most likely talking to actual people that were younger because even back then, there was a generation gap. Even back then, young people didn't want to submit to authority, so he especially addresses them. Listen to the elders of the church, not just older people but the elders, the officers of the church. And then he continues, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The quote that's often attributed to C.S. Lewis, there's debate. Did he really say it? But regardless, the quote says, True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. True humility is not just thinking less of yourself. Oh, I stink. I'm terrible. True humility is thinking less of yourself. It's not even, your mind is not even on you. Why? Because it's turned outward to other people. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians 2 when he says, Have the attitude of Christ, who in humility considered others more significant than himself. We are to consider others, the needs of others, as even more significant than our own. That is the mentality and heart, the culture that should pervade the church, this heart of mutual service, putting each other first. And so, yes, the elders are called to care for the flock, but flock, you are called to care for your elders. As I said earlier, it's all too easy for elders to complain about what the church is not, what the flock is not. And it is our job to help the flock become all God desires them to be. But flock, on the other hand, it's all too easy for you to complain about the elders and what the elders are not when what you should be doing is helping the elders through your prayer, through your words of encouragement, through tangible help and support. You should be helping them. To become all that God wants them to be. Hebrews 13:17, once again, obey your leaders and submit to them. They are keeping watch over your souls of those who will have to give an account. Every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God, and we will have to give an account for how we served. But there's a corresponding <coughs> um, command there to the congregation. Let them do this with joy. And not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you meaning church you have a responsibility too. there's a joke among husbands right I'm sure we've all heard this phrase happy wife happy life right you keep your wife happy your life will be happy by serving your wife making sure she's happy in a sense you're serving yourself because if you're making your wife miserable Who does that hurt? Yes, it hurts her, but it hurts you too. It impacts you. You're home, you don't want to go home because it's this tense, miserable place. Happy wife, happy life. Well, we could also say the church. Happy leaders, church is sweeter. (laughs) Because if you are Frustrating your leaders. You're critical. You're always complaining. You don't help. You don't support. You just demand. What that does to a leader's heart is it makes us drag our feet. I don't want to be here. I don't want to spend 11 plus hours preparing a sermon when people don't even care. That's what it does. And so, in the end, if you're making it hard for the leaders, who is that hurting? You. Oh, they don't care anyway. I'll just come up here and just think of something in the car. Hmm. Blah, 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 right? That's hurting you. And so, in a sense, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here: the more you support your leaders and make it a joy for them, you know who you're helping? Yes, you're helping them. But you're helping you. That's to your benefit. Because then what it produces is the exact thing that Peter's talking about here. When will a church flourish? When will a church do great? When it's led by good leaders. And what do good leaders look like? They are eager. They're willing. They throw themselves into their work with joy. They're willing to make sacrifices and they're glad to do so. And yes, it's the leader's responsibility to guard your heart and to get your heart to that place, but it's also the church's responsibility to help get them there. Pastor, we love you. Elders, we love you. We're thankful for you. We're praying for you. How can we support you? Such that their heart and attitude does become I love this church. What more can I do for this church? I'm so glad I get to drive home at 2 a.m. because of how it's going to impact this church. Happy leader, happy leaders, church is sweeter. And so as I said at the start, let us give thanks to God for these brothers here and let them know that you're thankful. Encourage them, pray for them, so that as they serve you and as you serve them, as we lovingly serve each other, each part doing its work. Ephesians 4.16 says, when each part is working properly, Body does its part. Leaders do its part. The body grows so that it builds itself up in love for our good and for his glory. Let's pray.